Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 10, The Poll Tax Riots Night Out. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go, photograph what we photograph, watch Foxy Boxing when we watch Foxy Boxing. And today we'll be talking about Season 1, Episode 10, and that's Homer's Night Out, which originally aired on March 25th, 1990. And I'm going to be telling the story of the poll tax riots, the largest of which occurred in London on the 31st of March 1990, six days after Homer's Night Out was first aired. Excellent. If you'd like to talk to us for some odd reason, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. By the way, did anyone tell us why Ferdinand Marcos Jr. was nicknamed Bong Bong? No, no, no. Come on, listeners, been let down there. If anyone, especially if you've got any connection to the Philippines whatsoever, if anyone knows why the son of Ferdinand Marcos... Ferdinand Marcos Jr. If anyone knows why he's called Bong Bong, then please get in touch. Excellent. Okay, so let's go straight into it. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen rating of 16.9. That made it the second highest rated Fox show of the week. And it appears I haven't summoned the energy to write down what the highest show was, but I'm willing to bet it was Married with Children. Uh, the production number is 7G10. So it was produced directly before the last episode, which was 7G11. And that's going to make a lot of sense when we look at this episode side by side with Life on the Fast Lane. But Gareth, I hear you ask, what was the UK number one at the time this episode went down? Well, it's a change to the number one. As storming up the charts from number 12 the previous week, we have Snap with the power. Oh, God, yeah. I remember that. That was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I know the song, obviously, but I've, I don't know that much about it, and I've not had much time this week to upskill myself in Eurodance of the early 90s. <laughs> so with massive apologies, I have lifted this next passage from Wikipedia verbatim, written by Michael Munzing and Luca Anzilotti, under the pseudonyms Benito Benitez and John Virgo Garrett III. They managed uh, Chelsea, didn't they? Yeah, as far as I can tell. <laughs> either that or the next two on the list. Um, and produced by Snap... The Power was the group's third single, featuring a rap by Turbo B and vocals by Penny Ford, lip-synced in the video by Jackie Harris. Oh, okay. See, I grew up believing that it was Tina Turner that sang it for some reason, and, and, and I've no idea why. Uh, there's a certain amount of hollering. Yeah. You know, Tina Turner is known for the old hollering. So uh, um, there is an original version of this. It's basically all samples. But yeah. Due to clearance issues, they had to re-record it. And Jocelyn Brown was still suing them about the original when the re-release came out. <laughs> so we've seen a couple of times in this uh, mere 10 to 12 week snapshot of early 90s music, uh, a time when sampling technology and the creative minds using them had outstripped the development of the law around intellectual property and wound up in a storm of legislative controversy. Mm. Finally, and just to bring it down a, a peg or two from that last uh, wordy sentence... It was the entrance music of Darts Supremo Phil the Power Taylor, the most <laughs> successful darts player in history by a long, 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 long chalk. So that's probably brought a nice chunk of royalties their way, assuming they actually got to keep them. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, 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 I loved watching darts 
Back when I was a kid watching darts, there were two darts leagues. There was the BDO and the PDC, and we've still got them. And in a nutshell, all the money was in the PDC. If a player was any good in the BDO, they'd move to the PDC. And then the BBC had to pretend that they didn't exist. It was like, where's the world champion from last year gone? He's gone to the PDC. We can't say anything about him. So um, anyway, that's a nice little darts tangent. Yeah, and, and you know, for my part, I, I prefer the, the homely quality of uh, the Lakeside and uh, the BDO. It's synonymous with New Year for me. Yes. Uh, as yes. is the inevitable appearance of Ted the Count Hanky. <laughs> Back in the 80s, there was that famous Not the Nine O'Clock News sketch, which uh, featured uh, drinks players <laughs> playing darts. But we'll talk a bit more about Not the Nine O'Clock News a bit later. So Excellent. Very forward. Back to The Simpsons then. The chalkboard gag, and there was one this week, luckily, uh, was I will not call my teacher hotcakes. Okay. <laughs> and the couch gag is the couch collapsing, as first seen in Homer's Odyssey. The writer of this episode was John Vitti, who we briefly discussed back in episode two, Bart the Storming of the Stars HQ. <laughs> so give that one a quick listen. Go on, we'll still be here. <laughs> You're back now? Right, so here's what happens in the episode. Homer spikes the punch at his assistant Eugene Fisk's birthday party, causing him to put the moves on a female co-worker. Meanwhile, that scamp Bart buys a mini spy camera from one of those mail-order deals which promise a lot more than they can give and take an inordinate amount of time to deliver their disappointment. It's a really good realisation of that kind of back-of-the-comics scam page and also features a hypno-coin, x-ray specs and a way to get muscular in a hurry, at least the latter two of which were staples of those ads. True to life, it takes six months to turn up. Contrary to experience, it actually works, and Bart is able to sneakily photograph the family in a number of compromising positions. At this point, Homer goes off to a bachelor party for Eugene Fisk, previously his assistant, now his supervisor, (laughs) as Marge works out after giving him the Spanish exposition. (laughs) The shindig is held in Davy Jones's locker, the private hire room of a restaurant called The Rusty Barnacle, where Marge coincidentally decides to take the rest of the family for dinner, as we don't have much of an episode if that doesn't happen. True. Everyone is enjoying the party except the groom and his father, who apparently didn't realise that there would be booze and rambunctiousness involved. <laughs> yeah. They're particularly put out by the arrival of Princess Cashmere, a belly dancer and, one assumes, stripper, who has been hired to provide entertainment. Homer joins her on the table for a fully clothed dance. Just in time for Bart, who has sickened himself with the sight of his squid platter with extra tentacles, to pop his head and his mini spy camera round the door to capture the moment for posterity. Bart joins the future photographers of America at school, assumedly as a means to get his photos developed, as I can't imagine the company of club president Martin Prince was his motivation. Anyway, Martin, in a surprisingly heterosexual moment, loves the photo of Homer and Kashmir and asks for a copy. Bart refuses but gives one to Milhouse, with the condition that he keep it to himself. It's Milhouse, so naturally the photo goes viral, early 90s style, mm. as the picture is photocopied and passed around town, finding its way to Marge when a copy arrives at her aerobics studio. Meanwhile, Homer is extremely confused by other people making allusions to the photo, until he gets home, is given a hastily packed case by Marge, and kicked out of his home. This leads him to have to sleep at Barney's wonderfully shoddy apartment, from where he looks wistfully at his house, which he can see as the porch light's been left on, 
leading Barney to phone Marge and give out at her about wasting money on electricity, which is probably <laughs> the episode's best gag. <laughs> when even Mr. Burns asks Homer to pass on the secret of his animal magnetism, Homer decides to go home and apologise sooner rather than later. Rather than accept an apology, Marge reveals that she is most concerned about the lesson he is seemingly taught Bart, that all women are merely sexual objects for men's gratification. Homer takes Bart to a bunch of strip clubs in search of said dancer, eventually tracking her down at the Sapphire Lounge, with the intention of introducing Bart to her so that Bart can discover that she's a real woman who likes real things, rather than just a sex object. He winds up on stage at an inopportune moment and is recognised as the guy from the photo, and is encouraged by the club's MC, Gulliver Dark, to take part in a musical number, which he does with relish. But seeing that Bart is looking up to his actions, Homer halts the number to deliver a speech about treating women with the respect, which touches the hearts of all in attendance, especially Marge, who accepts that he has done his best to solve the problem and forgives him. The end. Mm, mm. The thing that's always struck me about this episode is how conservative it is. Because they go out on a, you know, on a bachelor party, what us Brits would call a stag party, and they have a stripper, and Homer is photographed having a dance with the stripper. And I'm pretty sure that pretty much anyone nowadays would just say, so what? But the Simpsons use it as, as you know, a scandal. Absolutely. Try and take home, that's very odd. And I'm sure some of that is due to what you could and couldn't show in... Uh, early 90s television. I suppose so. I suppose, I suppose if she was doing something a bit more compromising to him, shall we say, what, what am I trying to imagine here? This is ridiculous. But uh, you know, <laughs> with, with Homer Simpson in the driving seat. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, perhaps we'll, uh, perhaps we'll skip uh, that uh, thought. Yeah, I might even cut that. I might even cut that altogether. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how the rest of it goes. So, Tom, would you like to hear about some character debuts in this uh, episode? Ah, yes, because there's quite a lot. Well, of course, there was the uh, auspicious debut of Eugene Fisk, and he never appears again. Yeah, thankfully. And Eugene Fisk's father, and he never appears again. Mm. It's actually quite good to have some characters who never appear again. Yeah, um, yeah. Given uh, the outcry that we heard about a couple of episodes ago with Dolph's lack of character development. Yeah, that was odd. But, um, yeah, with, with, with the name Eugene, maybe someone sort of poked them in the shoulder and said, do you know the origins of the name Eugene? Cause Ooh, it, I don't know the or- origins well, of the name Eugene, Tom. Perhaps well, you'd like to enlighten me. Well, it comes from a very, very shady practice that was prevalent in sort of late 19th century, early 20th. And this idea was eugenics which was the idea that you should be trying to breed the best people possible. And it obviously fed into Nazism, and a lot of countries had sterilisation laws based on eugenic doctrine. So if you were, quote-unquote, feeble-minded, and this happened in countries like Sweden, you could be uh, forcibly sterilised. I did not realise that that was that way round. That Eugene came from eugenics. Yeah, yeah. My God. Yeah, I've it, learned something today. We haven't even got to your history bit yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah. The, the, the idea was that um, you know good marriages would be praised as eugenic marriages. So yeah. yeah so yeah, the, the name Eugene took off as someone who'd been well bred, I suppose. Uh, yeah. And the opposite of eugenic is dysgenic. So uh, 
Uh, yeah, there you go. It's, 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 it's a very, very shady bit of history. Winston Churchill was quite keen on eugenics, so... Um, ah, they so, keep that one quiet, don't they? Well, exactly, exactly. Don't get me started on Churchill. <laughs> right. I have to save that for another day. Yeah, and we're not starting a eugenics podcast. No, so, no, uh, definitely yeah. not. Back to The Simpsons. Back to The Simpsons. <laughs> Debut of uh, Gulliver Duck. Now, mm. I quite like the charismatic master of ceremonies and singer-in-residence at the Sapphire Lounge, as voiced by Sam McMurray. But there's something I didn't realise about Gulliver Duck. He was played in live action by Sam McMurray in the Tracy Ullman show. Oh. So the character was tangentially related to The Rise of the Simpsons before it was in The Simpsons. I don't know if there's any other characters who are like that, who, who, who make a live action appearance in something and then become a character in The Simpsons. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Yeah, I'll have to look into that, but I do believe that's the only one. Um, some sources, though, have said that Gulliver Dark is the lead singer on Tito Puente's song in Who Shot Mr. Burns Part 2. That's what I was thinking, because he looks an awful lot like him. Yes, yes. Now, there is definitely a resemblance... But I can't 100% prove that that was the intention. So I'm going to have to offer that as theory rather than fact. Okay. Which okay. is a shame, because I would like to believe that Gulliver Dark gets his uh, his day in the limelight. He sounds a bit different in Batito Puente 1, though. He sounds a bit, sort of, as a, as a bit of a Hispanic twang to his accent. So. Yeah, yeah. I, d- I think it was probably just a recycled character design myself. But, um, but there we go. Uh, also, of course, Princess Kashmir. Real name Shauna Tifton, also known as April Flowers. She is an exotic dancer who doesn't get very much character development ever, despite being an absolutely key character in this episode. She has been seen in later episodes. In Lisa's Pony, she is dating Apu. In Homer vs. the 18th Amendment, she is witness dancing with Chief Wiggum mere moments before he is called a pervert by an angry mob. And she is, of course, one of the acts at La Maison Derriere in Bart After Dark. <laughs> and uh, the debut, according to some sources, of Lenny and Carl. And that's not actually true, because Lenny was in the last episode. Mm. Although, if you take it in production order, this is actually Lenny and Carl's debut. And it's telling that they have the wrong voices in this as well. Yes, completely wrong. Some have said a, a, a literal swap of the voice actors, but again, couldn't 100% uh, verify that. So this is definitely Carl's debut, any way you, uh, you skin it. Um, but we'll get better chances to talk about these two down the line. So I'm, I'm not going to uh, put too much time on them this time, I don't think. Fair enough. Did you know there are a couple of film references in the names of the strip clubs that Homer visits with Bart before reaching the Sapphire Lounge? I didn't. And there are so many strip clubs in Springfield, I lost count of how many there are. Yeah. And that doesn't include La Maison Derriere. No, no. Well, that's a burlesque house. That's a different thing altogether. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely not a potato-potato uh, situation. No, no, no. Who actually says potato? Potato? Yeah. Um, I'm getting off topic here, but that, that's, uh, that's just always bothered very, me. Very, very posh people. One, uh, one of the strip clubs in Springfield is called Florence of Arabia, which is a reference to Lawrence <laughs> of Arabia, Arabia, obviously. Um, some of the others are called Foxy Boxing, Girlesque, and Mud City, the last of which features a sign inexplicably saying, Close Encounters of the Mud Kind, which of course is a reference to the incredibly slow-moving sci-fi film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. I mean, I like a good pun every now and again, but that's just 
mud third. That's not even clever, it's, is it? It's, it might as well be close encounters of the potted shrimp kind. Yeah. It's just it's, nowhere near it. Speaking of shrimp, but it's funny you should mention that, I just wanted to, to point out at this stage that in the episode, Lisa shows great enthusiasm for fried shrimp. Yes. Which, of course, really ages it. Yes, because, you know, that was before she was a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah. Davy Jones's Locker is a reference, perhaps unsurprisingly, to the myth of Davy Jones's Locker, <laughs> uh, and not the Pirates of the Caribbean sequel, which got that legend mixed up with the Flying Dutchman and all sorts of other things. Which reminds me, where's Captain McAllister? Mm. Would you believe we won't see him until Season 4, Episode 8, New Kid on the Block, running the Frying Dutchman, which I always imagined was on the site of the Rusty Barnacle from this episode. Speaking of the Rusty Barnacle, it was mentioned in the previous episode. Before Patty and Selma decide that the Singing Sirloin will be the venue for the birthday meal, Marge mentions Chez Pierre and the Rusty Barnacle. Okay. Just going to show that the two episodes are very closely linked. And yeah. note that, of course, this was produced first. Meaning that Marge and Patty and Selma would have known about Homer's night out and his being pictured with Princess Kashmir before the events of that episode <laughs> took place. And in many ways, this makes a more satisfying arc that way round. But something happens at the Rusty Barnacle that Marge presumably would not want to relive but she suggests going to the Rusty Barnacle. But in the episode, which is after the one we've just watched, but produced before it, have I got that right or have I tied my head in knots? No, no, the, the episode, we're talking about the episode that was aired before, but produced after. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the last episode, imagine that episode was after this one, and Marge knows the Rusty Barnacle because she's been... Right. So she's thinking, oh yeah, the Rusty Barnacle. Oh, that horrible business when my husband was caught photographed of a stripper. Let's go back there. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, it's probably better than the singing sirloin. At least nobody sings at you. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, to me, this makes a more satisfying arc. Uh, Marge's temptation then comes after a, an extra point of dissatisfaction for her. And their reconciliation closes the book on the entire chapter rather than this way around, where a less salacious act follows the more risky one for the marriage itself. And it also makes Marge look a lot less fair for her actions, given her near miss in the previous episode. Mm. It makes more sense as an escalation of frustration anyway. That, 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 I, I, to be fair, that is all sort of armchair writing that I've come up with after learning that <laughs> these were produced kind of back to back and the other way around. Yeah. Um, but you can you can tie yourself in all kinds of brain swallowing knots if you if you start uh, thinking about that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, if you try and rationalise it rather than thinking it's two episodes of the cartoon that don't need to be related. But I must just take the chance to say I told you all that the changes in the airing order from production order would get interesting eventually. Yes, you You've did. You've all thought I was mad, but it's actually happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is good, and 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 it's a nice little. Nice little uh, mind bender, shall we say? I was I, I was going to say something rude there, but I'll try not to swear. <laughs> all in all, I'm I'm not mad keen on the episode. I must say it uh, it doesn't seem to do a great deal. No, uh, drags its feet a bit in getting there. Um, it's it's much ado about nothing in many ways. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's it, it it's not one of the best, but it has its moments and some quite unsettling moments as well. Like when Martin Prince says. 
Who's the sexy lady? It just sounds wrong in his no, voice. No, Martin Prince should not be saying sexy lady. Yeah. No, 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 no. There is a, there's a debate to be had there about Martin Prince, about whether the, the character is now intentionally homosexual or bisexual. Uh, it is seems it? to be the, uh, the view of a lot of observers. But I don't know whether they're just trying to uh, clumsily sort of trying to make him into a, a, a bullied boy, essentially. Yeah. The kind of person that would get bullied. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to somebody who is outright choosing a, a sexual orientation yeah. or, or feeling his own sexual orientation at that young an age. I mean, you, you, you've watched more Simpsons than I have. Do, do they make that abundantly clear in later episodes that he's gay? or Not abundantly it? clear, but the, the there's definitely more ambiguity about right, it. Right, right. Oh, well, well, in one of the earlier ones, there, there's that line when he says, soon I shall be queen of summertime. No, king, king. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think his finest moment... I'm not quite sure why I've gone off on a tangent about Martin Prince. But his, his finest moment for me is in um, Lemon of Troy, where he's dancing around Nelson and singing a, singing a <laughs> ballad uh, as Nelson desperately tries to punch him and keeps missing. Yes, um, yes. Uh, but anyway, I'm really... I, I'm, I'm just spinning my wheels at this point, and it is holding up what I imagine will be a fascinating and relatively <laughs> acerbic uh, examination of uh, poll tax and the poll tax riots. Yes. So, Tom, I shall not hide your light under my bushel any further. <laughs> OK, OK, yeah, yeah. I've been looking forward to this one because, like I said in the last episode, this is something that I lived through, I have vague memories of, and I can pronounce the names of everyone involved. Because it actually happened in the UK, and I'm talking all of the UK, so so England, Wales, and Scotland. Uh, although not Northern Ireland, that's that's just that's just come to mind. But anyway, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. So most of the UK. Yeah, yeah, okay. So tax. You're a fan of tax, Gareth? I I can't say I'm a massive fan of tax. I'm not entirely sure anybody ever is. No. Um, I, I'm right with uh, Homer when he says, let the bears pay, pay the uh, bear tax. And in this case, <laughs> let the poles pay the pole tax. <laughs> uh, that's poles as in the inanimate uh, rods, not the... Right, uh, the, the, not uh, people from Poland. No, no. Okay, okay. So so my, my view of tax is fairly straightforward. Uh, governments, both local and national, provide services, and it's got to be paid for. So it makes sense to tax for people who are using those services. I believe that tax should be as progressive as possible. So it should be based on ability to pay rather than everyone paying the same. And this puts me at odds with conservatives in general and the Thatcher-led Tory government of the 1980s in particular and how they wanted to collect taxes to fund local governments. So for centuries, local governments in the UK were funded by taxes from the domestic rates system. The amount you were taxed was based on the nominal rental value of the property you lived in. So if you were living alone in a huge mansion, you would pay far more tax than, say, four adults living together in a small house. Which makes a, an awful lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, you would have thought so. But for a long time, this system was unpopular with rich Tories, whose idea of fairness was that everyone should pay the same. As early as 1974, the Conservative Party proposed abolishing the domestic rate system. After they came to power in 1979, they explored the possibility of doing this, but they had a problem. Rates were collected at a local level, 
And most local authorities in the big cities were at the time under Labour control. Of course, the Labour Party in the 80s was far more progressive than Thatcher's Tories, and clashes were inevitable. Examples include Ken Livingston being in charge of the Greater London Council, or GLC, and the exploits of Derek Hatton and the militant tendency that occurred right here in Liverpool. In fact, the GLC was, I think that was abolished by by Margaret Thatcher because they just fell out so much and it was and it was eventually replaced by the office of the Mayor of London, mm. which Ken Livingston became. There was a fair bit of uh, time between the two, though, wasn't there? Oh, there was, there was. There, there, there was a fair big old chunk. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that that was introduced by Tony Blair, Mayor of London. Uh, Tony Blair, boo. All <laughs> criminal, boo. Worst Simpsons guest star ever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, in 1984, the government introduced the Rates Act. So this allowed the central government to cap rates if they thought they were too high. Because um, there was this constant battle between the local authorities and central government because central government thought that the local authorities were just spending too much because they came from completely different ideologies. So Labour was tax and spend and Tories were cut, 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 privatise everything. So, yeah, completely different. So in 1986, a government green paper proposed a poll tax. This was to be a flat rate of tax that everyone in a local authority was expected to pay, regardless of income or house size. The proposals were included in the 1987 Tory manifesto, and they would go on to win the subsequent general election. So he had to do it. The poll tax, officially known as the community charge, to make it nice and fluffy, was introduced in Scotland in 1989 and was due to be implemented in England and Wales the following April. The tax was deeply unpopular. It was, it was regressive, and in my view, completely unfair. Everyone in a local authority was expected to pay the same amount, so one person living alone in a mansion was expected to pay a quarter of that of four adults living in a small house. The local authorities were expected to set the rates, and the rates could vary wildly from council to council. Original estimates for the poll tax put it at £200 per person per year. However, in Scotland, in 9 out of 11 local authorities, the tax was higher than the estimate, sometimes 100% higher. 600,000 people, or 15% of the population of Scotland, refused to pay it. And in Edinburgh, a demonstration against it attracted 15,000 people. Resistance to the forthcoming poll tax was quickly organised in England. In November 1989, the militant tendency set up the All-Britain Anti-Poll Tax Federation, otherwise known as the Fed, to make it sound American and cool. (laughs) And the non-aligned so-called 3D group emerged. 3D as in, don't register, don't pay, don't collect. They organised a demonstration in London for March 31st, 1990, six days after Homer's Night Out first aired. Officially, the protest was not supported by the Labour Party, but left-wing stalwart and an original Alexiteer Tony Benn, as well as Britain's foremost cat impersonator George Galloway, showed up to address the crowds. The estimate for the size of the London protest was 200,000 people. The protest began at Kennington Park and made its way to Trafalgar Square. And it was uh, you know, quite, quite, a, quite a policing effort. And I just want to take a moment to consider the reputation of the police at the time. 
a lot of people saw the police as having a reputation for being heavy-handed, some going so far as to suggest that they were the enforcers of the Thatcher government. You know, and, and this idea certainly comes from, from the miners' strike and you know, the, the tactics of the police during yes. that time. Yes, the police were not well-liked no, at that no. stage. So there are two examples from popular culture that I want to bring up. The first is The Young Ones, which I absolutely loved when I was a kid. So, so The Young Ones started in 1982, I think. It's a really surreal comedy where you've got four students living together in a house and they get up to all sorts of crazy shenanigans. So there's a scene where they have a party and Rick puts on a record. I think it's Don't You Want Me Baby by The Human League. He manages to dance for mere seconds before a couple of policemen burst in, smash up the record player and say that the neighbours have been complaining. They tell Rick to watch his step, smash a vase, then leave. The punk character, Vivian, you know, very funny, giving a man, <laughs> giving a, man a girl's name, has a hamster that he's named Special Patrol Group after a branch of the Metropolitan Police. The SPG are also referenced in Not the Nine O'Clock News, where one Constable Savage is slowly revealed to be a massive racist and is therefore assigned to the special patrol group by Rowan Atkinson. Now, now, not the nine o'clock news, I think, started in 1979 or 1980. It was right when Thatcher got in. And looking back at it now, you just sort of think, how did they get away with some of the stuff at the time? Because there's one scene where... I think it's Griff Rhys-Jones who's dressed up like, uh, like, like, like a sheikh, like he's from Saudi Arabia. And the scene's set in a morgue, and he's been brought in to identify a body. And the mortician brings the body out, and it's a woman. And he says, I've, I've never seen this woman before. And he gets the bedsheet and lifts the bedsheet up above her nose like that, so you can only see her eyes. And he goes, that's my wife! I think, how do you... How, what?! Not the nine o'clock news. He's, he's remembered fondly as a great source of satire mm. around the, uh, especially with the the rise of the Thatcher government. That and, uh, spitting image, obviously. But yeah, I mean, I think all comedy of its time, of around that time, with the probable exception of the young ones, actually had some relatively questionable material, mm. um, and you. you essentially have to put it down to it being a different time which is an excuse yeah. that i hate to use but to to get stuff on mainstream television at the time it had to be recognizable and that was the kind of humor that was that was knocking around yeah, yeah. unfortunate and uh disgusting though it is yeah there's there's even an example of uh rowan atkinson saying the n-word and he says it in character he's playing a tory politician giving a speech that, at their conference and he says, um, uh, if what we're doing doesn't work out, we will go back to the N-word loving days of the past. And he's like, that's Mr. Bean. That's Mr. Bean saying the N-word. That's not right. That's quite possibly why Mr. Bean didn't say anything. Yeah, um, quite possibly. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, so away from, uh, unfortunately, racist comedy then. Yes, and yes. Back to the poll tax. Yes. So, so, so just going over there, the... The reputation of the police and how they were, how they they were perceived. So, uh, I I did a little, little bit of reading on special patrol groups. So, sp special patrol groups were tasked with being a mobile unit capable of quickly reaching crime scenes and dealing with them. They had a bit of a reputation for brutality. One notable case involving the SPG was that of Blair Peach. Blair Peach was a special needs teacher 
and he was on a march with the Anti-Nazi League when he was struck on the head and killed. There was an investigation, and the Met settled out of court with Peach's family. A subsequent inquiry into the SPG found that policemen in it had unauthorised weapons in their possession, which included baseball bats, crowbars and sledgehammers. And it's also important to remember that the poll tax riots occurred just a few months after the Hillsborough disaster, which the police attempted to cover up their role in. So the reputation of the police in the 80s, not that great. So, okay, on to events of the poll tax protest. To start with, the organisers hadn't wanted it to be at Trafalgar Square at all. When they had an idea of the sheer number of people who wanted to attend, they requested to the police that it be moved to Hyde Park instead. And this request was denied. So before the before it's even started, you know, the police not looking that great. At roughly 1.30pm, the protesters began on their march between Kenneting Park and Trafalgar Square. As Trafalgar Square filled up to and beyond its capacity, the protesters were forced to wait in Whitehall. You know, Whitehall being the main thoroughfare you go down before you get to Trafalgar Square. So everyone's trying to get to Trafalgar Square, they can't, they have to stop. Yeah, that's just the laws of physics. Apparently, the police were concerned about protesters turning their attention to Downing Street, which, of course, is just off Whitehall. So they sealed off Whitehall and didn't allow anyone to leave. And that's where the violence started. So the violence started in Whitehall with accounts saying that the police were heavy-handed with some arrests and the crowd reacted by throwing whatever they could get their hands on. Meanwhile, mounted riot police arrived to try and clear Whitehall despite the fact that no one in the protest could get out of that street. So while they're being forced towards Trafalgar Square, the protesters who are at Whitehall trying to get to Trafalgar Square have to push through police lines, because otherwise they're getting squashed. I mean, we mentioned Hillsborough a second ago, but really, a narrow miss here as well. Well, possibly, possibly. Well, well, as, as we'll find out, a lot of people got injured. So when the protest officially finished at 4pm, the police attempted to use charges by the mounted police to clear the square. And this produced one of the defining moments of the riot, something that certainly sticks in my mind anyway. A young woman was knocked over by the lead horse, and she ended up underneath the hooves of the horses that followed. Miraculously, she was helped to her feet and she simply walked away. But I mean, it's 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 one of those it's one of those juxtapositions of power. You've got police in their riot gear riding horses, and just a defenceless woman who happens to be, if you like, in the wrong place at the wrong time, and she gets properly clobbered. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it looks really awful. How she just got up and walk, walked away from that, I've absolutely no idea. So by this point, sections of the crowd were agitated and extremely angry. The police attempted to drive armoured vans through the crowd near the South African embassy, you know, trying to regroup, and were met with bricks and scaffolding poles. Some demonstrators climbed up some scaffolding and threw debris at the police, and they set fire to some cabins. And this fire caused a lull in the rioting that lasted about 20 minutes. And I've, and I've heard conflicting reports about this. Some, some people say that this lull happened because of all the black smoke and it was like choking people and they couldn't really do anything. Other people say it was a very traditional British, um, a bit like when someone drops a pint glass in a pub and you hear it smash and everyone goes, way. It was, it was, it, it was people going, people going, there's a fire. way. So that's what I've heard. I've, I've, I've heard, I've heard two different versions of that. 
Later that evening, the police forced the protesters, who at this point were largely rioters, north out of Trafalgar Square and into the West End, where they smashed up restaurants, torched cars, looted, that kind of thing. They even attacked Peter Stringfellow's club. Oh, no. Not Peter Stringfellow. Uh, The rioting went on until three in the morning. £400,000 worth of damage occurred during the riots, along with 400 arrests and over 100 injured, both demonstrators and police. Because, you know, the police were having, like, stuff chucked at them, so, you know, a few of them were going to get hurt. At the time, pretty much everyone involved blamed a group of about 3,000 anarchists for the violence. However, and as much as I don't like to defend anarchists, this view was contested by a police report from March 1991. The report also highlighted a lack of police numbers and equipment. In total, 491 people went on trial following the riot, but most of them were acquitted following the work of the Trafalgar Square Defendants Campaign, who got their hands on 50 hours of police videos and found that most of the charges were inflated or fabricated. Again, going back to the reputation of the police, Mm. it was far, far too easy for them to just, you know, grab people, chuck them in a van... Right, why have, you picked, why have you picked this person up? Oh, he was assaulting a police officer. And it was just the police officer's word against the defendants. But, you know, we were entering an age of CCTV where stuff was caught on film and would go up on the news that night. So a lot of the porkies that the police were telling, you know, just didn't stand up. So that's the events of the riot. The poll tax was also a financial disaster for local governments. Because so many people refused to pay, local governments were left with a deficit of about £2 billion. Ooh. So, you know, that money's got to come from somewhere. And of course, the poll tax played a large part in the downfall of Margaret Thatcher. She was tied to it and she became a liability. I think she had an approval rating of about 12% during the poll tax rise. She was challenged for the leadership of the Tory party, didn't get enough votes to avoid a second ballot and resigned. It's a bit more complicated than that. We might cover it in a future show. Her successor, John Major, did away with the poll tax in 1993, replacing it with council tax, which we still have today. Remember how the rating system charge you based on the size of your house? Well, council tax charges you on the size of your house. The main difference is rather than your house being given a nominal value, your house is evaluated and put into a band. The higher the band, the more tax you pay, but there is an upper limit. So there we are, the poll tax riots. Plenty of food for thought. Yes. My main thought at this stage is, uh, thank God they got rid of the poll tax. I currently pay the lowest possible amount of council tax due to the pokiness of my flat and my single living status. Mm-hmm. Uh, and under the poll tax, uh, I'd be wrecked. Yeah, so. yeah absolutely. Because absolutely. the thing that enrages me about the poll tax is just this is just this disconnected version of fairness that comes from, you know, Tory conservative dogma. Which is, you know, everyone pays the same. Everyone pays the same. You know, doesn't matter if if, if, if you're a millionaire, you pay the same amount as a as, as one of those peasants. Yeah, it's it's it, it's it's really horrible. But um one thing that I was reading about that that I found quite interesting was I'd always assumed that it was a bunch of about 3,000 anarchists who were the leading cause of the trouble. But a lot of a lot of modern theories have contested that because, it, because in my experience of marches, 
it is the guys in black who, who are the troublemakers. They're the ones you've got to watch out for. But they're really cowardly. So it's like, they will smash stuff up, but only if they think no one else is watching. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, oh, the police are over there. Quick, chuck a, chuck a rock through Starbucks windows. That'll show them. That'll smash the state. The other thing I'd, I'd note about that claim is, uh, are there actually 3,000 anarchists? It's not really uh, in vogue at the minute, and it's it's very much a, a trendy thing when it does occur. So, mm. uh, yeah, three thousand anarchists back then. Uh, I mean, it was mainly it was mainly baggy, wasn't it? <laughs> there was no no musical movement that would have uh, would have shored them up. No, um, no. I, I mean, I have never understood anarchism as a political ideology. I, I, I've had people try and explain it to me, and the idea is that the state is inherently bad. And I asked him the obvious question, okay, right, right, well, without the state, how do you have law and order, and how do you have schools and hospitals and whatever else? And their answer is, oh, people people just sort them out. They'll just happen, people are good. And I said, no, people are arseholes. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I think I'd go with that, to be honest. I I think most people are self-serving, and Yeah. uh, yeah, will just be out for themselves. Uh, so take away law and order, and you're going to have a lot more trouble. Yeah, yeah. Although, although I did have um, I, I did have an odd experience with anarchists at Liverpool Pride uh, this year, 2018. And you can tell they're anarchists because of their flags. Because they have that um, uh, diagonally quartered red and black flag. And one thing you always get at Pride is a group of about 20 Christians who have their own little spot where they can stand and they just stand there quietly and they've got a load of signs and they just say, like, repent or, you know, I don't think they're allowed to say anything, um, you know, obviously markedly homophobic. And every year I've gone, they've just been there and you get told, you know, just don't pay attention to them, just, you know, carry on having a good time, just walk past them. And this year, between the parade and the Christians were a bunch of anarchists who had very, very large speakers and were playing very very loud music i think i got what they were trying to do they were trying to sort of face down the christians either try and sort of form a wall between the parade and the christians or try and just just like annoy the christians with the loud music and i and i was sort of in two minds about that because it's what the anarchists were with themselves being peaceful but just kind of obnoxious but not as obnoxious as the christians were being but what was really really weird is that we went to a restaurant that happened to be next to that spot. And after the parade had gone past, the anarchists put on that Benny Hill music and started dancing a conga. Were they in fast forward or? Well, they were dancing pretty quickly, but I was just like, what is going on? That was so weird. Anarchy with a sense of humour? Is such a thing possible? Yeah, quite possibly. One of, one of them had a sign that said F-U-C-K TERFs. And I thought, yeah, good on you. <laughs> You're all right. There was, um, when you were saying about the poll tax and that that, that was going to be your, your thing this week, mm. uh, I tried to look up one thing, which is a a joke I half remember with the punchline, no pulse axe, as if, as if the axe of no pult was some kind of legendary <laughs> weapon. And people would obviously chant <laughs> for no pulse axe, no pulse axe, no pulse axe. Um, and I can, I honestly cannot find 
any reference to it on the internet that explains what the joke was or why I might have known it. Yeah. Um, so, if anyone would like to send me an eel um, <laughs> saying why I remember that joke, then uh, you can contact us at uh, podcast at retrospecticus.org or tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Yep, absolutely. Yep, that will do for this week, I think. Excellent. But yeah, poll tax bastards. <laughs> <laughs> and you bleeped me in an earlier episode. This has been your sweariest week yet. It has, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, I bleeped you for an SH1T. Oh, okay. You, 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 can, you, can, you can say bastard. It's an, it's an illegitimate child. It's right. fine. Okay. Well, uh, a very big bastard to you all out there. <laughs> yeah, okay. Bye, you bunch of bastards. <laughs> See you next time. I doubt they'll be back after that. <laughs>